Good morning. Oh, boy. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 this morning, we're going to continue in our study of the life of Moses with uh, practical application to our lives. The, the section we're going to be looking at this morning, chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus, is often referred to as the call of Moses. Um, that may be a little large for the label on the uh, CD for you, so I'm going to simply call it when humility becomes a sin, how the burning bush applies today, and other practical lessons for Christian men and women of the 21st century from the third and fourth chapters of Exodus. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is where we left off when we were looking at this uh, passage a couple of weeks ago, you remember, and I love that phrase, the back of the desert. You can't get any more remote than that. It says in the old King James, the backside of the desert. God's training ground. He often takes us to the backside of the desert to get us ready for service for him, as we saw in the life of Moses and even later in the life of Paul. Uh, verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked. And behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I love the way he says this, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Just to uh, set the scene for you, Moses has been in the backside of the desert for 40 years. As we said uh, last time, learning humility. And uh, he's done a good job of that. We'll, we'll see that as we get into the passage. Quite a, he's a changed man. One of the nice things to notice here is that uh, we know that when he went into the desert, he was 40. So 40 plus 40 makes 80. The man is 80 years old now. And yet God has work for him to do. And in fact, Moses has, pay attention up here now, you know how much time left? 40 more years. Yeah. So... As long as there's work for him to do, God's going to keep him around. Isn't that cool? You know, he may be 80, but God has 40 years of work, and so he's going to live to 120. And that's true of any, any believer. As long as you have something to do for the Lord, you're going to stay here. And when he takes you, that means your work is over. Real simple. Now, uh, I said in my short title there that one of the things we were going to look at was the burning bush and how it applies today. And um, now, remember, we're calling this, this series in the Old Testament character studies that does not exclude the character of God. In fact, if we just looked at the people, it might be a little misleading. So we're going to do a little character study on the person of God right now because uh, the lesson we can learn from the burning bush here is the holiness of God. God says it, in fact. He says you're on holy ground right here. And it's lesson number one for Moses. God could have started anywhere in his call of Moses, couldn't he? 
you know, he could have, said, I could have tapped him on the shoulder, Moses, I got something for you to do. But he starts with this burning bush because he wants right off the bat for Moses to understand that he's going to be serving a holy God. And it's not just true for Moses, it's true for us. It's a lost message today, really, isn't it? Today, there's an easy familiarity, compromise with the world, tolerance of sin. You know, I think we think of God as being just like us. Listen, with the Lord in regards to sin, the policy is, what is it? Zero tolerance. And so it should be with us. Our God is a holy God, therefore we should be holy. Now, as we look at these things, uh, as Bill used to say, read the Bible with a question mark for a brain. Not doubting its, its uh, veracity, but why does God do it this way? Why does he say that? Do that. There are all kind of riches hidden if you do that. And I'm sure, come on, it must have crossed your mind once or twice. Why a burning bush? Right? You know, of all the ways to approach Moses, why this bush with the flame in it, and yet the bush is not consumed? Well, God is teaching us something here about his holiness. First of all, uh, you know, later it's going to be a burning mountain, right? Most of you know that. Can you imagine? You know, the flame went up like a furnace, it said. Well, it was a burning bush and not a burning mountain because if it had been a burning mountain, Moses probably would have had a heart attack at this point. Okay? But the interesting thing is, it, it, God clearly says that the bush is not consumed. So can you imagine what this would look like? Here's this bush. I imagine it's fairly large with this fire in it, but it's not burning. And God is teaching us something there. It's a special fire. It's the fire of God. And, it, and its uh, root is the holiness of God, you see. And it's a searching, uh, purifying flame. It doesn't burn paper and wood or even people physically. In fact, the chemical engineers here, uh, uh, Andy or Noah, I could tell you that fire, physical fire is just a chemical reaction. Okay, the fire of God is a purifying fire and its target is, is spiritual impurity. The biblical word is sin. Okay? It's a very special fire. And the reason the bush doesn't burn because there's no sin in the bush, you see. If it had been on Moses, it would be in another story. It's, it's an incredible uh, kind of thing. Uh, there's nothing like it. It, it can, it can uh, just completely consume spiritual impurity, if you will. You know, clean it right up. Kind of like, uh, wouldn't it be nice, ladies or guys, you know, to have something like that. You, could, uh, you do your monthly cleaning in your house, you know. Just kind of stand outside with this kind of special fire. You know? <laughs> and, and, all the, and all the dirt and all the crud just goes away. You know, nothing else is touched. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, man. That's the fire of God. And we can learn a lesson from this because it helps clear up some confusion about hell. It's interesting... I, and I, I think it's true. A lot of people confuse because uh, they hear the phrase everlasting destruction, talking about hell. Well, how, how can people be destroyed forever and not just kind of disappear? Well, you see, the fires of hell are this kind of fire, you see. It's not a physical fire. It's, it's, it's real and it's painful. We know that. Jesus talked about the rich men in hell, remember, and uh, he, he uh, 
First, Jesus says he was in torment. And then the rich man speaks and he says, I am in torment in this flame. So it's real and it's painful. It's, not, it's something you don't want to be undergoing. By the way, I, I know you're saying, oh man, here's this preacher and he's already five minutes into his message talking about hell. You know, wow. Well, that's, we're talking about the fire of God here. I'm sorry. If you have trouble with hearing about hell, you'd really have trouble with Jesus. You know, he talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And so uh, the, the fires of hell are not burning the people. It's, it's burning their sin, so to speak. But they're suffering for it. You see, they're being punished. Jesus says, people will be thrown into the fire that shall never be quenched. It doesn't ever go out. And so I often thought this when I was a new Christian. You'd think, you know, after a while, the, the people are kind of purged, you know, in hell. It's, it's all done. It should end. And that's a, another misunderstanding we have. I want to ask you a question. Do you think people stop sinning when they get into hell? Do you ever think about that? You think they do? You know, I, you know they don't. I th- people think that. I think all of a sudden we get this picture of people in hell and it's like, oh man, I'm really sorry. You know, boy, I wish I wasn't here, you know? No. Learn a lesson from the book of Revelation. This, this is the only other passage we're going to turn to. I want you to turn to Revelation 16. And notice something about people. Here we are in chapter 16 of Revelation. We're right at the end of the judgments of God. Now, uh, we did a series on Revelation several years ago, and it took us like two years to get through it. But uh, uh, there are three sets of judgments in the book of Revelation. Most of you probably know that. Beginning with the seven what? Well, yeah, seven what? Seals, there you go. Seals are first, then the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. Here we are at the end of the judgments. We're at the end of the bowls. This is the very end of the judgment of God. I'm stressing that because can you imagine what people have gone through by this point? You would think, oh, man, you know, finally they're ready to repent, right? Wouldn't you? Listen to this. Here we are, chapter 16, verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And what did they do? It says, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Whoa. There you go. Next, verse uh, 10, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. What did they do? They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Whoa. This is the first occurrence in the book of Revelation of people blaspheming God. Not at the beginning, at the end. And then finally, the last bowl. Uh, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. city was divided apart. You can imagine how terrible this is. Then every island, verse 20, fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. 
And so we close the book on the final judgments of God, and the sound is people blaspheming God. You see. So that's, that's the kind of people that go to hell. We don't uh, suddenly change in hell, repent. In fact, God, your, your fate is sealed when you're in hell. That's it. Your chance to repent is over. The restraining influence of God is gone, by the way. Pardon me? A talent. Uh, probably about 50 pounds. It's an Old Testament measure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The point is, look, uh, God puts this stuff in here to warn us. It's real. Okay. And he's telling us to beforehand so we can repent now while we have the chance. You know, there's an illustration I just realized this the other day of, of hell in our everyday experience. Well, not our everyday experience, but something that we all know about. You know, when they have nuclear reactors, there's waste from it. And uh, that's bad stuff. It's real bad stuff. Uh, you can't go toss it over in the Altamont Pass because it's spewing out really bad things that can kill you. Alpha rays, beta rays, gamma rays, neutrons. It'll kill you. And so uh, they're right now preparing a place in the, in the, by the way, the desert, the backside of the desert, <laughs> a place called Yucca Mountain. They got five miles of tunnel underground, a thousand feet below rock. And they have to because this stuff keeps spewing out bad stuff for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. And they, they don't know what else to do with it. And so they bury it as deep as they can in this rock. And hopefully the rock will just keep absorbing all this bad stuff that keeps coming out and is far enough away from people in cities that it can't hurt them. Well, you see, that's what hell is. It's the place where God puts sinners who continue spewing out bad stuff, hell. But instead of putting them in rock, he puts them in a bath of his holy fire. It's the only thing he can do with them, you see. They refuse to repent in this life, and so now they're confirmed sinners who are going to sin for eternity, and so he puts them in this lake of fire, it's called in the book of Revelation, you see. But instead of a rock, he's got a, he's got a, a, a kind of a bath of this holy fire. And it's an endless cycle of torment, blaspheming God and cursing, and more judgment and more curse. It's terrible. All right. We're done, we're done with that. I know it's terrible. Let me, I, didn't, I said that for a, a purpose. There's, there's a solution. <laughs> Praise God. There's something you can do right now to have all your sins completely removed and cleansed away. And there's only one thing that'll do it. And you know what it is? Say it. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's right. Right now, forever, cleansed, no more sin. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You can have it right now. God wants you to have it right now. Better the blood of Jesus to clean you now than the fires of the holiness of God forever. Okay, back to Exodus here, chapter 3. Now God speaks to Moses to tell him, okay, I got something for you to do. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. 
So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, well, first of all, remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, be careful when you read this, okay? It's not like uh, God had gone off in a back room for 400 years, you know, and the people are really suffering. And all of a sudden they say, Lord, help us. And God goes, oh, oh, yeah, right, okay. It wasn't like that at all. God said way beforehand everything that was going to happen. God is not reactive. He's not even proactive. He has a plan that he is working out, and he's doing it right here. Well, the, the magic word in verse 10 here, of course, to Moses is you. Okay? God says, you will go to Pharaoh and you will bring my people out of Egypt. Now, we're going to go on for quite a ways here in this conversation. Let me just say right now that at this point, Moses could, in fact, he should say, okay, Lord, if you're with me, I'll do it. Okay? Everything from here on out is totally unnecessary. You're going to see it as we go through it. It's important to understand that everything he needs to know, he's, been, he's heard right here. Let's see how he responds. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's humble, right? That's good. <laughs> but there's a problem here here the supposed humility is actually a sin there's a bigger word than you in verse 10 you know what it is i god it's god saying i will say there it is that's the key and that's all moses needed I will send you. That's so important. God said that. If God had just said, you're going to go to Pharaoh and deliver my people, I'd be a little scared. But God said, I will send you. That's it. Case closed. That's all I need. Humility is good only when it's coupled with an unshakable confidence in God. Otherwise, it's just perverted pride preoccupation with self you know the old spanish song i i i i <laughs> moses is singing it here coupled with a complete lack of confidence in god you see that's the key now listen we're not mocking moses and we're not criticizing moses god put this here for our benefit he's a real man and so are we real men and women and people and I do the same thing, and so do you. Thank you, Charlie. Yes, I do. You know what I am. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to see in here uh, really incredible patience of God with his people. 
right off in verse 12. You know, God could have said, uh, Moses, weren't you listening? Okay. What does he do? But Moses said to God, pardon me, verse 12. So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Remember, he's down in the Sinai Peninsula, probably down toward the bottom, but out in the desert. He's not in Egypt right now. First of all, uh, he encourages Moses. In fact, uh, I love this. He says, I will certainly be with you. You know, God doesn't have to use words like that. Certainly. Do you realize that? All God has to say is, I will be with you. That means certainly, assuredly, guaranteed. Okay? For him to say this, he's trying to say it in the most extreme way possible. Moses, you have nothing to worry about. Okay? I will certainly be with you. And then, this is very interesting. I don't know if you caught it, but God gives him a sign. But did you notice something about the sign? Here it is. This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. When's the sign going to be? When he's done with his job. Isn't that good? Now, again, God speaks in such certainty that that should be enough. He says, when you have brought the people out. Not if, you know, or I sure hope you do. And if you do, I got something waiting for you. When you have brought them out, this will be the sign. He's giving Moses a chance to exercise faith here. You see. Rather than right now, a big uh, demonstration of miracles and so on, God says, when you shall bring, up, bring them out, this shall be the sign. You're going to come back to this mountain, and you're going to serve me. I love that. Okay, so here's t- opportunity number two. Moses could have said, okay, Lord, that's enough for me. I'm ready to go. He has more than enough now. What does he do? Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Is this a valid question? (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe it's because he's grown up in Egypt, and there all the gods have names. You know, Isis, Osiris, Ra, uh, Anubis, you know. And so he wants to uh, know what's the name I should tell them so they know who it is. Well, there are two problems here. First of all, the language that Moses uses sounds like he is going to obey. Let me tell you, he is not going to. You're going to find that out. It's not right to talk to somebody like that, you know, like, okay, I'll do what you're going to say. And you ask questions like, yeah, okay, when I do it, I need to do such and such, right? But uh, really, Moses is buying time. We're going to see that. It's an unnecessary question. Listen, Moses is going to go and he's going to say, uh, I am has sent me. You know what that's going to mean to the uh, Hebrews? Absolutely nothing. They don't know who that is. In fact, God has already told him uh, who it is that's sending him. Look back at verse 6. God has already said it. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They know who that is. That's what they're going to respond to. Now, there's a, you're going to say, well, there's a wonderful side benefit here, you know, because we learn this name of God and everything. In fact, uh, you could ask Noah, it's a wonderful word. It says, I am in your English. It's really a very unusual word in the Hebrew. It's not used anyplace else. 
It's the verb to be, but it's all three tenses. It's I was, I am, and I will be, all at the same time in one word. Isn't that cool? You know what Jesus says about himself in the book of Revelation? He calls himself the one who was and who is and who is to come. You see, he's calling himself God there. Now you say, well, yeah, I was and I am and I will be. No, no, he was saying at the same time. He's not bound by time like you and me. So, Moses, uh, in fact, listen, if Moses needed to ask that question, then what we're saying is God had not given him enough information. And it's a good thing God, uh, Moses asked that or he wouldn't have known what to do. So which is it? Think about it. Okay. The implication really here is Moses saying, Lord, you still haven't told me enough. I, I, need, to, I need some more information. Where Do we do that? Huh? You know, I don't, I don't know enough yet. <clears throat> By the way, there's a lesson on serving others here. And um, this applies to children as well as adults. Let me give you a little scenario. I know nothing like this has ever happened in your family. Okay? So you can, you can, you can relax. Poor mom is tired and says to her son, son, I'm tired tonight. Would you please do the dishes for me? Son, sure, mom. <clears throat> do you mean all of them? <laughs> yes, all of them, please. Including the silverware? <laughs> yes. What about the forks? <laughs> yes. And the knives? And the knives, too. How about the spoons? <laughs> yes, all means everything. It's good he just learned the definition of that word, you know. <laughs> but uh, you don't mean the frying pan. Yes, especially the frying pan. How about if I just rinse them? No, please, wash them with soap. Right. Where's the soap? <laughs> I admire this mom. She is so patient. Where it always is, under the sink. Oh, yeah. And I uh, suppose you want me to rinse them too? Yes, please. And then put them away? What else would you do with them? Well, you know, kind of uh, stack them on the counter. No. Please save me the trouble of having to finish up after you. Sure, I understand. <clears throat> Can't they wait till morning? No. I don't want to be faced with a bunch of dirty dishes in the morning. Right. Oh, I just remembered I've still got some math homework to finish up. But I'll try my best to get to the dishes later. Never mind, son. I'll do it myself.
Go back to mom's first request. Would you please do the dishes for me? Did her son need any more information after that? No. Was he asking all this stuff for, for help, for information that he needed to do the job? No. Now, I know nobody in this room has ever done this. <laughs> but in case you ever encounter this situation, okay, we as adults can do the same thing with each other and with the Lord. We do it all the time. And we show a poorly disguised unwillingness to help. I use that word disguised in quotes because it's deliberately not very well disguised, our unwillingness. We deliberately let it show with the hope that we can get out of it. There's a wonderful passage in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And it's very unusual because God goes into great detail in describing every little act that Jesus does in washing their feet. Now, God never wastes words, and he hardly ever goes into detail. He, he normally would have said, and Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And we'd see that as a humbling act, and we would learn a spiritual lesson from it. But you know what God says? Listen to all this. And Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, why does God tell us all that? If he'd gone to that level of detail throughout the Bible, it would reach from here to the moon. He's doing it to show us and that whatever the Lord did, he did it with his whole heart. Only wishing to please his Father in all things. Now, and put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Imagine you were one of the uh, disciples there, and Jesus told you before the meal, listen, after the uh, dinner tonight, I want you to wash the, the disciples' feet. How do you think it might happen? You know, I could see something like... Um, you know, you come to the first foot and, <coughs> you know. <laughs> kind of some, my dad used to call that a lick and a promise, you know. Something like, uh, what, both of them? <laughs> you know, and then, oh, I forgot the towel. You know. Oh! Pardon me, I've got to refill the basin. It's getting a little late. Uh, maybe we do this some other time. I'll tell you, I was uh, thinking, they're renting this upper room for this meal. It wouldn't have been something for the, uh, the owner of the place to just kind of walk in on the, their last supper at this point with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He doesn't know who Jesus is, never met him, never heard about him. This is the first view he's ever had of the man. And as he watches Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and he sees the care and the skill with which Jesus washed those feet. You know what he would have thought 
He's wondering who this guy is. He'd say, this guy must be a professional foot washer. He's the best in the world. Let me tell you, whatever Jesus did, he was the best at it. He was the best carpenter that there ever was. He was the best cook. You know he cooked fish and served to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of John? You never had a better meal than those fish that Jesus had to have gotten, cleaned, started the fire, prepared, and then served to the disciples. He would have done that so carefully and so perfectly. Besides being the perfect teacher and everything else, and by the way, the perfect Savior. Oh, man. I am so glad it's Jesus that saved my soul. There's nothing left undone. Paul says, therefore, we should make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. Okay, well, our patient God is still dealing with Moses, and he responds to Moses' continuing questions here in verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to them, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So, listen to this. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the the Egyptians. You getting the message? It's going to happen. I don't know if you noticed, by the way, God's repeating himself here patiently in the beginning and uh, I don't know if you caught it, but he said to Moses, go. It's time to go. He's going to get more firmer about it in a minute. Uh, one other little thing to notice, verse 18. God says, then they will heed your voice. We're going we're gonna to need that in a minute. Okay, well... Ten times in verses 22 through, uh, 20 through 22, God states a certain future. Ten times. It's a lesson for us. When following the Lord, 
people, brothers and sisters, we need just two things from him. Number one, the promise of a certain future. Isn't it nice to know how the story ends for yourself? I do. Do you know? Listen, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the next uh, 10 minutes to myself, 10 years, if I live that long. I have no idea. But I can tell you this. When I either die physically or Jesus comes back, I'm going to be with him forever. Guaranteed. What more do I need to know? <laughs> okay. Well, I said two things, and he's willing to do this. I just need to know the next step to take to please him. Not, not the next 50 steps. Not uh, what's going to be planned for me in 2009 from January to December. Just the next step. And he's willing to give me that. Those two things. Now, Moses had that back in the very first statement from God. He had both of those. I don't know, uh, some of you uh, guys or gals, if they have project managers at your, your job. Some people are, are uh, workers and project managers. We have project managers where they have these big charts, you know, with the whole fiscal year planned out. So-and-so is going to do this and that and this, and, and in uh, September they're going to be working on that, you know. Now, that's God's role. That's not mine. I don't need to know that. He's the project manager. Is there something in your life or my life where God has plainly said everything I need to hear, but I'm still waiting to obey? <clears throat> I'm asking for more information. Okay, well, how does Moses respond to all of this? Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, uh, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. What's wrong with this question? <laughs> well, there are two things. The first one, back at verse 18, remember I pointed that out to you? What did God say? Then they will heed your voice. Moses is saying, well, suppose they don't. <laughs> Hello? You kids have never said anything like that, right? You know? Suppose it, uh, such and such happens, you know. After your parents have just said, it's not going to happen. Let's not suppose that. God already said it wouldn't. But uh, that's really, if we needed verse 18, by the way, to refer back to, that means God needed to have said that. And so the real problem with this question is something else. If you remember back in God's initial instructions, God never said anything about how the Israelites were going to respond one way or the other. Does Moses need to know that? No, he doesn't. You know why? Because it depends on what time of day it is if you want to know how they're going to respond. And we're going to find that out. One day they're high and one day they're low. One day they're hot, one day they're cool. One day they're praising the Lord and the next day they're cursing Moses. So, <clears throat> are the people going to heed his voice? Well, yes and no. Mostly no. It's not important. That's why God didn't include it. The obedience of Moses to his Lord has nothing to do with how the people are going to respond to him. Moses' 
sole responsibility is to follow the Lord and keep his eyes on the Lord. And the people are going to do whatever they're going to do. However, again, the Lord patiently accommodates Moses. This is incredible. Verse 2. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. I want you to notice this is the fourth time God has uh, used that very long expression to describe who he is that's what he's and he told moses that's what i want you to tell them who sent you he said that back in the very beginning furthermore the lord said to him now put your hand in your bosom and he put his hand in his bosom and when he took it out behold his hand was leprous like snow and he said put your hand in your bosom again so he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom and behold it was restored like his other flesh then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river, that's the Nile, and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Wow. Is God patient or what? Uh, here... He gives Moses a sign to perform, not just one, but three miracles. And in fact, he gives them a preview by performing them in front of him, maybe to encourage Moses too. Now, you'd say, well, this is necessary. We already talked about the response of the people. Does this do it for them, by the way? No. In fact, we, we really can't understand the ten plagues of Egypt. They are so incredibly huge and, and uh, amazing after all of those did that do it for them no in fact moses does do this when the, he first goes back and uh right away the people wow praise the lord you know moses is from god before moses even gets to the first plague they've already started bad mouthing him that's how long it lasts Okay, well, Moses isn't done yet. Verse 10. You'd think it would be, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll go, right? Then Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Poor Moses. You know, it's It's tough having to go and, and, and try to convince these people that you're sent from God, and then to go to Pharaoh, probably the most powerful man on earth at that time. You know, don't you kind of sympathize with him a little bit? Who is he talking to right now? What's he doing with the living God? He's arguing with him. <coughs> yeah. Poor guy. Hello? Can't talk to Pharaoh, can't talk to the Israelites, but I can sure argue with God pretty well. That's amazing, isn't it? The translation here is, 
uh, God, you made a mistake. You've got the wrong guy. You know, like uh, Peter's famous words in the New Testament, not so, Lord. The contradiction, you know, not so, Lord. You got that? That's what Moses is doing here. Moses's quote, humility here is nothing more than unbelief, disobedience, and sin. True humility, as I said, is an honest estimation of one's own weakness and unworthiness in the sight of God, but combined with an unshakable confidence in his sufficiency for everything. And in fact, false humility is pride. It's a preoccupation with myself rather than God. Just a little side thing here, by the way. Notice, um, well, we'll go ahead and read uh, verses 11 and 12, and you'll see, and then I'll talk about it. Here's the Lord's response. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Second time, God has said, okay, it's time to go. Notice here, uh, I like this. God, by the way, imagine this. Here's the creator speaking to his creature, talking about his own creation. And when he says he made man's mouth, what he's talking about here is speech, isn't it? Because that's the thing at issue here. And so God is, just in saying, I made man's mouth, he doesn't just mean this thing right here. He's talking about the lips, the teeth, the tongue, the palate, the jaw, the cheeks, the throat, the larynx, the bronchial system, the lungs, the diaphragm. That's quite a system. And it's working right now for me. It's amazing. You see, it didn't evolve from a frog's croaking or a monkey's chattering. God said, I made it. It means he designed it and he created it. Well, it's wonderful that we have the Creator speaking with His creature here, but it's in rebuke. And as I said, now therefore, go. God says, okay, it's, this, this conversation is over. We've talked enough. Go. Just do it. He's saying, my patience has ended. Hold on to your seats. Verse 13. How does Moses respond? Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Whoa. What's he saying? That's right. Get someone else. I'm not going to do it. I'm not the guy. Wow. (sighs) It's amazing to me that God didn't respond at this point like the mom did, you know. Forget it. I'll do it myself. Or something worse, you know. I want you to listen. Now, it's going to say God gets mad at him, and I don't blame him. But listen to God's response. It's really the grace of God here in this final section. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Does God need that, by the way? Does God want that, by the way? No, he does not. You get an eloquent speaker in there. Who gets the glory? That's right. Not God. I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. Moses finally got his way. 
and he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as god and you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs we got aaron is that a good choice oh boy uh i hate to say it first of all the one quality that uh moses uh would would admire in his brother and which god talks about his eloquence is totally unused (laughs) did you notice what god said listen to this now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and i will be with your mouth and with his mouth and i will teach you what you shall do where's the eloquence of aaron here it's gone he's just a mouthpiece he's useless he's a fifth wheel he's the result of moses's obstinance it's worse than that though aaron is a hindrance and we're going to see later it's the guy has a real problem he has several problems he's compliant he's compromising but listen to this this is what's going to happen later while moses is up on the mountain with god and god is going through the ten commandments with with moses can you imagine the very presence of god getting the ten commandments and then god begins to explain to moses all these things about aaron and the priesthood and his garments how he's supposed to be holy to the lord and leading the people in the worship of god do you know what aaron is doing at the time yeah he's asking everybody for their jewelry makes this big hunk of gold and uh he's breaking the first and second commandments to begin with by the way he's giving another god before god and he's making a graven image and by the way in case we're not sure about it it says very plainly in that passage that moses took uh, pardon me that aaron took an engraving tool and carved the calf why is that important because when moses confronts him you know what aaron says yeah he says i put the gold in the fire and out came this calf he's an idolater and he's a liar And of course, we saw last week when Michael talked about Miriam, he was in with her with pride and envy against Moses. Isn't this a great secondhand man? This was never God's plan, you see. It was Moses' idea, and, and, and God in his grace accommodated him. It's interesting, there's a passage in the Psalms uh, where God says, and I will give them the desires of their hearts, and I will send with it leanness of soul. why does god record this uh last bit here well again it's like everything else it's for us to learn from the will of god is perfect okay and too often we know what the will of god is but for some reason we're not doing it and we're delaying for one reason or another often it's because you know well we need uh we say we need more information when that's not really the problem there's a good verse in romans 12 many of you've memorized it it says be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove listen to this what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god three words good acceptable and perfect if it's perfect that means if you change it it's not perfect anymore I remember when I was a young Christian and uh, I was 
doing something with a, a brother who'd been a Christian for many years. And uh, he had sought counsel on something, but he decided to do something else instead, something he thought of. And I asked him about it, and he said, uh, well, you know, Romans 12 talks about the good, uh, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. I'm doing the good will of God. And as I talked to him, it came out that he had this doctrine that he made up that's not in the Bible. He put in the word war instead of and. The good or the acceptable or the perfect will of God. You can pick one of the three. Since they're all the will of God, any of them are okay. You could do the good will of God, you know, and that's, that's third rate. You could do the acceptable will of God, and that's second rate. Or you could do the perfect will of God. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing the, the uh, lengths we can go to to change the will of God into what we want to do, isn't it? And that's what this guy had done. Well, it was later to be shown in this guy's life that it was neither uh, good nor the will of God. Listen, God is patient and long-suffering, but it's better to believe that from his word than to make him prove it by our unbelief and disobedience. Delaying tactics are okay on the basketball court and the battlefield, but not when it comes to serving our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that too often we disguise our disobedience with a lack of information. And Lord, we just uh, think of your son, your lovely son, who said that it was his delight to do your will. Lord, we pray that that might be our heart as well. Lord, we have one round here to show you how much we love you. Lord, may we do it by just simply obeying you at your word like your son did. But we ask it in his precious name. Amen.